vicious thing again where we tackled multiple chapters at once, but as I started reading and uh, studying this week, I couldn't really get past the first nine verses of 1 Samuel 21. So that's where we're going to be, just those first nine verses. 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 9 say this. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the high pri- the priest, not the high priest, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the priests of Saul, servants of Saul, was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the priest's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, if you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. I wonder if you've ever been in a position where you didn't know, sorry here, where you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. I've never never experienced that. We, we went through some times early in our marriage where things were pretty tight, like we were a long way from payday and we had like saltine crackers and cream cheese and popcorn. <laughs> it was all the food we had in the house. But we, I mean, we were 20 something Americans. We could have pulled out our credit cards and gone to the grocery store. We just didn't want to do that. So we didn't, we, things were tight, but, but we weren't going to starve. David's in a different position than that. David's in a position where many, many people in this world find themselves, where he does not know, literally, where his daily bread is going to come from. He's running for his life. Here in 1 Samuel 20, if you, or 21, if you remember back into chapter 20, he had gone to, to Jonathan and said, why is your dad trying to kill me? What have I done? Why is he seeking my life? And, and after Jonathan says, no, 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 dad's not trying to kill you. We go through this whole process. And at the end, Jonathan realizes, wow, yeah, Saul really does want to kill David. And so David has to flee. In verse 42 of chapter 20, and Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have both, we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So David departs, he takes off, and then we're told here in chapter 21 that he comes to Nob. And we don't know exactly where Nob is. It's probably about a mile and a half to two miles north of where Jerusalem is. Uh, 
it seems that most likely after the destruction of, of the tabernacle area earlier in 1 Samuel, that not, not the tabernacle itself, but the city in which the tabernacle was housed, that the tabernacle was moved to Nob. And you've got a large number of priests who live here, and we'll find out about that in chapter 22. So David is on the run. He's, he's trying to find a place to be safe, and so he goes to where the priests are here at Nob, and he goes to Ahimelech. And what we first find David doing is seeking to find his own provision, seeking to make his own way in this tough situation. Verse 2 David said to Ahimelech the priest, yeah, after Ahimelech comes out and he sees David, and David says, or Ahimelech says, why are you here? Why are you here by yourself? Like, David is high up in Saul's command. David is normally leading an army. Why has he come here by himself? Ahimelech senses something is very, very wrong with this situation, and he's asking him, why are you here? Why are you here alone? And, And David says, the king has charged me with a matter, And said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I send you and with which I have charged you. And then later on in the passage, verse 8, when he is, you know, asking Ahimelech for a spear, he says, For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And this is an interesting situation here, because it seems that David is lying to the priest. He's at the very least misleading him. Saul hasn't sent him on a mission. <laughs> Saul wanted David at the table so that he could kill him. He didn't send him anywhere. And some commentators say, well, maybe what David is saying here is that God has sent him on a mission. God, the great king, has sent him on a mission. But surely Ahimelech understands him to be saying, Saul has sent me on a mission. Saul, the king whom I serve, the king whose service I am in, that's, that's the one who sent me on a mission. So whether David in his head thinks, oh, I'm actually talking about God, so I'm not technically lying. He's certainly misleading the priest here. Which brings, brings us back to a point that I made last week, is that when we're reading this, when we're reading the Bible, it, the biblical authors are never, never seeking to sugarcoat the characters. They're, they're, never, they're never seeking to just show the positive side and go, well, here are these great people who always did right, and this is why God loved them, because they were so awesome. No, it's just showing us David, warts and all. We're going to see when David has great faith and he's trusting God, and God's going to provide for him here. We're going to see that too. But, but I think David is pretty clearly wrong to be misleading Ahimelech the priest. He might have a good motivation like he, he might, might think, well, I'm running for my life, and if Ahimelech thinks he's helping out the king, it's, he's going to be safer than if you know, he actually knows that I'm running away from Saul. But even if that's his thought process, when you get to chapter 22, that's not going to matter for Ahimelech. Saul's not going to think, well, what was your motivation in feeding the runaway? That's, <clears throat> that's not how Saul's thinking. Saul is going to have Ahimelech and all the other priests killed because of David coming there. And so, really, what David should have done in that situation is been honest with Ahimelech and said, here's what's happening, I'm asking for your help, and and given Ahimelech the option of either saying, okay, yes, I'll help you, and I know that I'm taking my life in my hands, or 
get out of here, are you crazy? Why would I help you? And he doesn't do that. He, he just comes in and he, and he asks him for food. And it, it makes me wonder, like, how, how do, when we have a need, how do we seek for our provision? I mean, David is, is coming to God in a sense here. He's coming to the priests. But, but he's being pretty sneaky about how he, he gets his provision. I wonder if, if when you have a need, you're ever tempted to, to cut moral corners in order to acquire what you think you need. It, tempted to, to mislead or to do something wrong because in your mind you're thinking, well, my motivation in the end is right. I think that's what we see David doing here, and it has disastrous effects on, on Ahimelech and on all the priests here. And as I think we'll see later on at the end of chapter 22, David actually recognizes that this is, when they're all killed, he recognizes that this is his fault. Um, God is willing to provide, and we're going to see that in a minute. We don't have to, we don't have to sneak around to get God's provision. The second thing we see is that God does provide. Even though David is maybe not going about this in the right way, God is still faithful to him, and God still does provide for him. Verses uh, 4 through 6, after David has asked in verse 3, Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Uh, Ahimelech says he has no common bread, which means just like the regular bread that anybody would eat, like if he'd have gone to somebody else's house and asked for bread, they would have given him common bread. But that common bread is in contrast to what Ahimelech calls holy bread. And to understand what holy bread is, we turn over to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. So God's giving instructions here for the tabernacle. And he says, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord, which God had given instructions on how to build back in Exodus 26, I think it is. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly it is from the people of Israel as a covenant from it forever and it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings a perpetual due and then in that Exodus 26 passage it's referred to there as the, this, these loaves are referred to as the bread of the presence. It's bread that's brought before God on the Sabbath day, and it sits there in his presence, and then it's replaced when they have fresh hot loaves. And then the only people who are supposed to eat that bread are the priests. It's a provision for them from the people. It's God providing through his people for his priests. And, and Ahimelech here says, that's all I have. You know, I don't... We didn't keep any regular bread around. Apparently this was enough that, that this, they thought it was going to cover their needs. And, and yet he's willing to provide it to David 
on one condition, and that is the condition that the men who receive it are themselves holy. But it's an interesting definition of holiness here in verse 4. Uh, and I think we should probably take some time to understand what's going on. He says, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. David's answer, truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And I, most commentators agree vessels there is a, a euphemism for his, their sexual organs. That they, They're kept holy, it, which makes us wonder, like, is, is there something wrong with sex or women that the guys can't? If, they, if they've been with their wives, they can't eat this bread? Uh, if you look over at Exodus chapter 19, as the people are preparing for God to speak from Mount Sinai, verse 15 of chapter 19 in Exodus says, And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. So that same idea. And we know the problem isn't women per se, right? God creates women, male and female, in his own image. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 tells us that, that when God said, Let us make man in our image, man, plural, like, the beings, human beings, in our likeness, male and female, he created them, both equally in the image of God. So the problem isn't isn't women, per se, nor is it that there is something wrong. So, so Roman Catholic teachings, stemming back from Augustine, would say that even in in even in marriage, every act of, of sexual union has an aspect of sin of lust or of i think the term would be concupiscence so so even even in marriage you can't get away from the sinful part of sex is it would be the the teaching of roman catholicism and and that goes back to saint augustine who had a really messed up past and kind of overreacted <laughs> to his past uh in, in the way he taught about that but but god's word doesn't doesn't frame it that way i mean you look at at Proverbs chapter 5, where he's, he's telling the the first nine chapters of Proverbs are written as if a, an old man is speaking to his son, and he's saying, no, son, delight yourself in the wife of your youth. And you look at Hebrews 13, 4, which says, let the marriage bed be pure and undefiled. He's not saying, let them both stay out of it. He's saying that, that it is to be kept pure, like don't let other people into it. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians seven saying not don't unite yourself to a prostitute uh, to be sexually pure don't look at pornography we would say in our day i mean things like that there there is a, a holiness to what god has created and so that's not the issue here either it's not some sort of sin issue what we seem to see throughout the law though is is that the release of bodily fluids of one kind or another Seem, seem to connote a, a creatureliness that this side of the fall, even though, even though as human beings we're creatures created good, we're created in God's image, this side of the fall, that creatureliness is tied to our sinful nature. 
even though even though those aspects of how our bodies function aren't sinful in and of themselves they are a reminder that we are creatures not god and we're creatures this side of genesis 3 and so we stand under god's condemnation we are unclean before him unclean doesn't necessarily mean we i think a lot of times we think of unclean and we think that equals sinful that equals morally failing and that's not necessarily how it's used in scripture just as holy doesn't necessarily in every case mean morally pure so like even here it's talking about holy bread well this isn't bread that's morally pure right it doesn't have any moral agency it's a piece of bread but it's set apart right it's set apart it's for a different purpose and so, so un, uncleanness doesn't necessarily mean sin. In this case, I think it's talking about a creatureliness that when brought to this, this act of corporate worship is not fitting. So a, a, a parallel example for this, just to like pull it into a different realm where we can think about it. In Isaiah 6, you've got the seraphim circling the throne of God, and they have six wings, right? And so they've got two wings to fly with. We get that part. Like we get why they would need wings for that. They've got two wings to cover their face. Because even though they're seraphim and they live in the presence of God, they can't actually behold God's face and live. So they've got two wings that cover their face. And then they've got two wings that cover their feet. Because those feet in Scripture also symbolize a creatureliness that can't stand before the holiness of God. So that creatureliness, their feet, is covered as they're in the presence of God. And so here, I think, I think that's a lot of what's going on, is that, that God's, in the Old Testament, this, the, all these cleanliness laws that are provisions to, for the people to come before God in as clean a state, clean a state as possible, as, in a sense, as uncreaturely as possible. What does that mean for us? And we're not observing all of these laws. How can we come before? God is the same yesterday and today and forever. We just read that, right, in Revelation. The one who is and who was and who is to come. This is the same God. He has the same demands for holiness, for separateness, for otherness. How can we, who are unclean, both in the sense of being creatures in a sinful world and being sinners who are morally culpable before him how can we stand before him turn if you would to uh, matthew chapter 9 matthew chapter 9 verses 19 to 22, very familiar story for, for most of us, I would think. Jesus is, is heading to heal a man's daughter, and while he's on his way, verse 19, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. So she has been continuously unclean for 12 years. Came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, and seeing her said, 
Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. In the Old Testament, anytime someone who is unclean touches someone else, the person who gets touched becomes unclean as well. But this woman comes to Jesus and she touches him and, and it flowed the opposite way. Being connected to Jesus didn't make Jesus unclean, it made her clean. Jesus' holiness, Jesus' cleanness is so powerful as to override our uncleanness, our sinfulness. If you look at chapter 5 of Luke, Chapter Luke, chapter 5 of Luke, verses 12 and 13. It says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand. Again, remember, think, these, these people who are unclean, anytime they touch someone, anytime they come in contact with someone, that person becomes unclean. So if a person was a leper... They had to walk through. If they were going near other people, they had to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. And instead, he comes to Jesus and he says, I know you can make me clean. I know you can make me clean if you will, if you will, if you desire to, if this is what you want to do. And Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I will or I do want to. I want to make you clean. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So how do we, as believers, like how, how do we, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus entering the world, how do we come to God clean? We come through Jesus, the one who can make us clean. We don't have all these rules to follow, to, to appear clean and right. We come through Jesus, who by his life death, resurrection, and by the power of his spirit now makes us genuinely clean in the sight of God. We are clean not through following rituals, but by being cleansed by Christ. So David, back here in 1 Samuel, he says the men have kept themselves holy, and God provides for them. Because they have kept themselves holy, because they have been clean in that sense God God provides and he provides abundantly for them you know David had asked for five loaves but that that passage that we read in Leviticus how many loaves here are before the altar there's 12 more than twice as many one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel are there on, on the altar and I wonder if that makes you I don't know it just always takes my mind to the feeding of the 5,000 where they go and they pick up baskets full afterwards, and there's 12 baskets full, one for each of the disciples. And then likewise, uh, after the feeding of the 4,000, they go and they pick up seven baskets full of bread, the seven, like the complete provision of Jesus Christ for these men. He's the bread they need. God also provides David with the sword that he needs there at, in verses 8 and 9. Uh, he says, is there any sword around here? And, and Ahimelech, he's kind of in the same position where he, he had said, you know, all I've got for bread is the holy bread. And he's like, all I've got for a sword is Goliath's sword. And David's like, oh, I didn't know a sword like that sword. I will take that. That is a great sword. 
I wonder, do you trust God to provide your every need? Do you trust him to provide? Again, David didn't have to go sneaking around to ask. God is happy to provide for him. We, we pray in the Lord's Prayer every week, give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. And over in Proverbs, a prayer that I sometimes find convicting, but it is so helpful. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty, poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give us this day our daily bread. Not too much, because we don't want to forget you, God. But not so little that we are tempted to, to steal and to profane the name of God. Give us what we need. God is glad to do that. I can't think of which psalm it is off the top of my head. 34, maybe? Because I've been young and now I am old. I have not seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. The third thing we see is, is that we have the opportunity to be the means of God's provision. So, so David tries to provide for himself, and then God provides abundantly for him, more than he really he came asking for. God provided it for him. But there's another person in this story, and it's Ahimelech. And he is the means of God's provision for David. It would have been easy in this situation for Ahimelech to send David away. Even, I mean, he comes out, he's obviously pretty nervous about the situation. And, and it would be lawful, you know, in, in the technical sense of the term, to say, well, only bread I've got, you're not allowed to have, so I'll see you later. <laughs> hope, you, hope the next guy down the road has some bread for you, David. But Jesus picks this story up in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read? I, that's always got it. Jesus says this so often to the Pharisees. Like, it's just got to grind on them. These guys have so much of the book memorized. And he's like, Haven't you ever read? Like, have you never picked up this book and looked at what's in there? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus picks up this story and he, he uses it, now, it's interesting, the Pharisees, as I read this uh, as a 21st century American, I read it, and the first thing I'm thinking is, those guys are stealing grain. <laughs> That's the problem here. But the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25 actually makes provision for it. it 
in, in the land of Israel, if the people were going through their neighbor's vineyard, they could eat as many grapes as they wanted. They just couldn't fill up their bucket and take them home. And if they were going through the field, they could pick as much grain as they wanted with their hands, but they couldn't take the sickle to it. So there was, there was a means for which somebody walking around hungry would be provided for by the community. They just couldn't abuse it and steal from them. Uh, so that's not the issue here. The, the Pharisees are upset with the law breaking, the commandment breaking as they see it, that while they're working on the Sabbath, and Jesus points out, first of all, not, not first of all in order, but that the law creates exceptions even for the commandments. So the priests in uh, Numbers chapter 28 are told to make sacrifices to do their work on the Sabbath. And Jesus, the way he phrases it here, they profane the Sabbath. But they're not breaking the Sabbath because God told them to do this. He then quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And just a side note there, mercy is actually, a, that's, the, that's from the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So I sometimes hear people talking like, well, we can't trust translations. Jesus here is quoting from a translation of the Bible. He's not quoting from the Hebrew text. Okay? The Hebrew text uses a different word, steadfast love. Uh, he's quoting from the Greek translation of the Bible. I just think that's interesting. Uh, if you're ever worried about, man, I wish I knew Greek and Hebrew, like those are good things to learn if you want to put the effort into it, that's great. But Jesus is pretty happy quoting from his translation there. So I, I think we should take comfort in that, that we have good English translations, and Jesus would be happy if he lived here to quote from the ESV or the NASB or the NIV. I, um, that's totally a side note. I just I think it's worth pointing out. What, what Jesus quotes here, though, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, or in Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, is that God is, what he's saying is that God is after your heart. These Pharisees have all the external conformity to the law, all the religiousness, they've got it down. They've got it nailed down pat, better than anybody else. But their heart is far from God. Their heart is far from God. There are some cases in a fallen world where the letter of the law and the clear spirit of the law or even other commandments would seem to contradict because the world has these, like we just end up in scenarios where it's like, well, I feel like if I do this, I'm breaking this law, or if I do this, I'm breaking this. Like, what do I do? And Jesus says, here's the filter. Do what shows mercy. Do what shows steadfast love. Do what shows the character of of God, <coughs> we should obey God's law from a heart of love for God, not, as we can sometimes do, as an excuse for not helping others, which would be what God wants us to do, <laughs> right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. Say, what is what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, Ahimelech is put in a tough situation here. He has he has this bread that is only supposed to be for the priests, and it's breaking the rules to give it to David. He also has a starving man, starving men in front of him. And, and he obviously has the right grid that says God would want them fed. This is God's anointed. He needs to eat. So it might technically be breaking the rule, but this is a pretty rare circumstance, and I'm obeying the commandment to love my neighbor as myself. If I were in his situation, I would definitely want someone to give me food when I'm starving. So it, we often say that, and there's a sense in which this is true, like, all the commandments are equal, right? If you break one part of the law, you broke the whole law, James tells us elsewhere. But, but there, is in, there is a sense in which some commandments are greater. There, there's a reason Jesus says the sum of the whole law is to love God and love neighbor. Because when we come into a hard situation where we feel like either way I'm doing something wrong, like there's technically going to be some rule that gets broken here. I have to think through the filter of what is most in line with the character of God. What is most in line with loving God and loving neighbor here? So again, Ahimelech could have said, no, nope, the rules say you can't have the bread. But then he would not be loving his neighbor as himself. And so he's got to think through that filter. And that's, that's hard to do because that can get abused pretty easily, right? Uh, and we, we hear that used to, to say, well, we've got to endorse this and this and this and this that aren't honoring God, that aren't biblical, because that's what love is. And so we've got to have, love's got to be defined by the scripture. I, that, this calls for wisdom, right? Again, I, I think I said a couple weeks ago, one of the great gifts God gave us is the Proverbs, that to, to just have our mind shaped by biblical wisdom. This isn't an easy, this isn't like an easy Here's, here's how to fix every situation. Just think about how to love God and love neighbor. That can be a hard hard to think through how to do that sometimes. Um, but I think Ahimelech makes the right choice. The, not only does the author of 1 Samuel not seem to condemn him for it, Jesus commends him for what he does. He, he commends him. He he's endorses David eating the bread. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So in conclusion, are you suffering and in need? Don't try to figure it out on your own. Trust God for his provision. And, and look to his people as, as a means of that provision. Look, if you don't know how to figure out a situation, look for godly counsel. If you are in need and you need help, you should communicate that to the body so they can pray or if someone's got the resources to help you they can help you Like you, you need to communicate your needs with other believers and if you see someone suffering and in need, pray for God's wisdom as to how best to help meet that need whether that is just praying for them or it is some tangible way of meeting that need, pray
Pray for God's wisdom to know how to act. Would you pray with me? Father God, uh, life, life in a sinful world is really complicated sometimes. Uh, and, and we don't always know how to act. And so we desperately need your wisdom. And we thank you for your word which guides us. It, it is a, a light for our feet and a lamp for our path. We, we need it so desperately. And we need your spirit, the same spirit who, in, who carried along the authors, Second Peter tells us, who, who wrote these words down. We need him to illuminate so that we see what we ought to think, how we ought to live, how you would have us to honor you. Give us this wisdom, we ask, in Jesus' name.